not hear there. Now I can hear me. All of a sudden, I could not hear me. I am so sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Well, welcome back to another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, creator, host, film critic, pain in the butt. Um, I am. You can find my interviews and reviews at 147 print and online outlets around the globe, uh, locally in Los Angeles, Culver City Observer, Santa Monica Observer, British Weekly, and others. And then up and down the eastern seaboard, down in the southern United States, and then even over in Moscow, in China, South Africa. But every Monday you can find me with my cohort, Brian, here every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Adrenaline Radio. I'm going to assume cohort is a nice word. I'm using it in in a very nice way. Okay. Yes. Not in a criminal sense. Okay. (laughs) I could have said partner in crime. Well, that's fine. Let's not not incriminate ourselves on there. (laughs) We've seen enough of that this past week with the Olympics and Ryan Lochte. I know, but that, that is nuts. That is, we're not a sports show or, or you know, or cover any of that. But wow, that was crazy watching all that kind of come out. Well, and then I heard this morning, um, Speedo has dropped him. Ralph Lauren pulled him from their website, uh, and any mention of him, and uh, uh, Mark, uh, either Mark or Mike Gannis, who is a known sports business expert, was saying he's done. This is the kiss of death because not only was his apology lame, but he still hasn't told the truth about what happened. Yeah, and it's and you're in a visiting country too. Yeah, you behave yourself. You're representing. Yeah, and the fallout. You know, they put they did put on a very well done Olympics. Okay, we won't talk about the green pool, but you know, this just perpetuated the idea of crime and safety when in fact that was not the case. So. That's very disturbing. Very disturbing. And you know there will be a film made about this event one day. I am sure. What say you, Brian? About the film or about the whole entire incident? I think they'll make a film about it. Yeah. Uh, in the future. Yeah. If not a 30 for 30 with ESPN, we'll probably cover this also. A 30 for 30 may be, you know, that may that may be something that... Um, because these real Olympics were just... it was. There's so many stories coming out of there leading up to – I mean I, I can see ESPN picking this up immediately. If not in the next two years, it will be a 30 for 30 just of the Rio games. Just yeah. The, the corruption that was leading up to the games with the country itself to trying to scramble to put the games together. And then, you know, to top it off with faking a, a bathroom. Yeah. Incident. And you know who is one of the producers of the 30 for 30 shows? Eva Longoria. That's right. Yeah. Because I talked to her on the LA Film Festival opening night red carpet. Not about films, but about 30 for 30. So um, I would love to see that happen, to have ESPN do a thir- uh, 30 for 30 on it. You know, I, even if I have no interest in the content that the 30 for 30 film is, I'll watch it just because I've not seen a bad one. That's, yeah. I've not seen a, a, a poorly done there might be, I mean, I might rank them, and that's different, but every single one of them is incredible. Yeah, every and, one. and uh, cinematographer Sam Levy, who I did an interview with earlier this year, and we already played excerpts of that on here. Um, that, I believe, it was a 30 for 30 that Sam got an Emmy nomination for, the, the episode that he did uh, in the past. So, you know, good stuff happens, and somehow everyone, everything winds up in film and TV, um, including... Our special, very special guest today, who'll be joining us at the halfway mark, Monica Henreid. You know the name, Henreid. You know her father, Paul Henreid. Victor Laszlo in Casablanca. Jerry Dorrance in Now Voyager. And Monica is going to join us live, talk about her dad and this incredible project that she's doing. She is making a documentary Paul Henry beyond Victor Laszlo. So I cannot wait to talk to her about that. And unbeknownst to so many of you, not the TCM and the classic film fans out there, because I know a lot of you are listening right now, but Paul Henry was even, I think, more acclaimed behind the camera as a director. 
and he made the, the segue from film into television beautifully. And ironically, westerns were some of his big forte in television directing. I know many, many stuntmen who were actually directed by Paul, and it came as a shock to them 30 years ago when they would tell me about these episodes and say they worked with this director, and I know, I know who Paul, you know, Henry it is, and some of them were astounded because they were unfamiliar with the breadth of his actual acting work back in the 40s. So everything comes full circle. Everything comes full circle. So it's going to be exciting to talk to Monica about her documentary uh, and what she's up to with that and how we can help with that documentary. Uh, we're going to, in a little bit, we're going to hear more from what Jack Houston had to say about his family legacy and the history of Ben-Hur, as well as Rodrigo Santoro. I had a very, very uh, intense and wonderful interview with one-on-one interview with Rodrigo talking about his role as Jesus Christ in Ben-Hur. Rodrigo is always a joy. Every film that he does press for, we always manage to get a sit-down one-on-one together. And uh, that happened again with Ben-Hur. So that was beyond lovely. But before we get into anything else, we must do Brian's favorite segment of the show. You know, when, yes. Whenever we have somebody in studio yes. or, or on the phone, well, we never done it with the phone, but when I tell people about this segment, they crack up. They really do. And, and I take it extremely seriously. If I know. If it sounds like I'm kidding around, you, you have it all wrong. I love this. I know you do. I do. So if, any, if, if my excitement is taken as a joke, I need you to understand that it's not. Well, no, I know it's not I know, a joke. I know you know that it's not a joke, but I, I just don't want it to come across as one. I love looking at the countdown because, as I say, it's seven days less than last week, and we're getting closer and closer to it, and it, it, the excitement is starting to build. And, it, and when we turn the clock, well, then we're going to add another hour when we turn the clocks back an hour in the fall. Do we, we add an hour? Oh, no. <sighs> so that means I'm further away from me. It'll be an hour. Oh. Well, at, from Star Wars Episode Eight, yes, we have four hundred and seventy-nine days, twelve hours, fifty-one minutes, and as soon as I'm done speaking the sentence, forty-seven seconds to go. That's that's close. That's, that's I can't wait to hit the three sixty-five mark. We should actually have cupcakes that day when it gets close to the one year. We should have Star Wars cupcakes. Yeah, but you know what? We should have cupcakes for sure. Same day for Rogue One, a Star Wars story. One hundred and fifteen mm. days. 12 hours and 51 minutes to go for that one. Wow. That, that, I mean, I, you know, I've had, I had a lot of things going on this year. When you look at it, you know, you mark down dates. This one's approaching. This one's getting here. Rogue in, One is here. In another two weeks, it's going to be 100 days. Exactly, yeah. And we'll, we'll be here, I think, when it's 101. Yes. We'll be here when 101. And that's exciting. That I mean, and there's things coming out for Rogue One now. I mean, there's... Yes, we were talking about that before we went live. It's just been announced today. Uh, a lot of the product the product placement deals that are going to be coming out for Rogue One. We saw it with Star Wars. We see it with every film anymore. Um, the product placement beyond the actual merchandising and the toys. Um, for Rogue One, interesting partnership here. There's going to be some time of uh, some kind of product placement merchandising partnership with Duracell. So, and Brian has informed me he does not buy batteries, but if there's something on the in the packaging about Rogue One, he's going to buy batteries. I, you know, when I envision this, obviously, if Disney's listening, uh, make it happen. I'm, I'm picturing a little battery with a Kylo Ren on it, maybe even a, a, a specially themed battery, like there's a dark side battery where the entire battery is red, and then there's a light side or the the right side, as I was saying. The, Interesting possibilities. I mean, that, that would be awesome. I'd love to have that hanging on my wall, along with some of the stuff that you've given me over the past with Star Wars merchandise that I have. Um, that, I, that would be the best thing. I, I, I don't know. Of course. Then, of course, General Mills. There is always some kind of partnership with General Mills, so expect to see Rogue One cereal. Got to have my cereal. You've got to have your cereal. And then Gillette Razors. That should be interesting, but they also make other products. Yeah. And what's interesting, and I have to think about this, is, you know, they make deodorants. But when you look at the images that have come out of Rogue One so far, I 
they're either not using any soap and water to get clean because they all look perpetually dirty, or they're using a lot of Gillette deodorant products to survive around each other. Just uh, the the galaxy beyond is full of Gillette products. So <laughs> Obviously. It's, it's good to see them finally be represented on film. Hopefully they come out. You know, and of course, then Nissan. I'm that I'm curious to see how that's going to come into play. I'm in the market for a new vehicle, and by that I mean I don't have money for a car. So let, let's see, uh, let's see what they come out because I, I I'm interested. Again, shout out Nissan if you're listening. A, a car, all red, half half side red. Kylo Ren's face on the side, the other side blue. Ray's face on the other side. Make it happen, all right? Oh, and on, and on the no wait, this is for Rogue One. Um, this is a uh, red side. Let's do a uh, Alan Tudyk. Yeah, Alan Tudyk. I need I need something with Alan Tudyk in it. Oh, I need a battery shaped like Alan Tudyk. I don't know what product it's going to fit. Make it happen, Duracell. I'm I'm your I'm the person who's going to spend money on your product. <laughs> Brian really is the person who will spend money on these products. Yeah. So. You know, so definitely. Yeah, there it is. Definitely. I mixed up my Star Wars stories there, but yeah, Rogue One. Oh, and then what's the last one? Um, there's another one after that, right? I forget the last. Oh, Verizon. 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 So I'm very excited because for once, maybe there will be some Verizon product placement for Star Wars so that I can actually get a phone case for my Ver- Samsung and Verizon phones. You know, last year with the, with the release of Episode 7 with Verizon, they had a cool thing going where they were releasing Google Cardboard Box. And by, uh, yes, and I got one. You, yeah, I think you got the C-3PO and, mm-hmm. and R2-D2 yep. one, right? Yeah. And I, and I forget which characters they had, but if you've never heard of Google Cardboard really quickly, it's, it, it, trans- it makes your phone a 3D machine yep it's incredible you download the app and you can take tours of france you can take you can fly over cities with google maps you can watch youtube videos that are created in 3d and and turn around i was watching a star wars one actually recently Mm -hmm. where they were parroting star wars and you can walk around the landscape that they were filming at so you didn't necessarily have to have the focus on the camera or even the person that's Mm -hmm. on screen speaking you can walk around it's incredible so i hope they do something like this again that would be really cool yeah because i know i i could only try it out at the super secret press event before star wars uh seven came out um and of course i got my free one and who do i give it to i give it to brian because he will cherish it yeah and Wait, use it. You're going to give me the Rogue One one? If you get yes. one? Yes. Oh, okay. All right. I will. Okay, sweet. I will. Alan Tudyk version. Listen, Verizon, you're listening? I need a phone <laughs> shaped like Alan Tudyk. Please make it happen. Yes, we have great love for Alan Tudyk He's here. He's called in. Yes, he has. And he, and he called in himself, and he talked to me, and he was the nicest person. Just the sweetest person. And he did his yeah. King Candy for me, and he also... You know, couldn't he couldn't speak about Rogue One? We tried. I know. Uh, we tried to get some yes. information out of him. Yes. But he, all he can say was that yes, he's in it. Yes, that's it. That's all he was able to speak about. But he talked at great length about Con Man, which if nobody has seen the Con Man series, please see it. It is hilarious, and they're doing season two, and it's Alan Tudyk and Nathan Fillion. And since we no longer have Castle, this is how we get to keep track of Nathan Fillion. General Mills. No. Alan Tudyk, San, uh, Alan Tudyk cereal, please. Okay, then I'm okay. Well, you know we're not going to see Ryan Lochte on any cereal boxes, so you know let's replace let's replace athletes with with Rogue One characters. But let, let's get to serious business here, which is going behind the lens, and we're going to start off and a an absolutely beautiful film that opens this week. It's called South Side with You. And while t- most of the bulk of today's show is all about classic film and history, Southside With You is in and of itself a piece of history. It is a fictionalized version based on known facts of Michelle and Barack Obama's very first date. And much as we heard Bill Clinton talk about the difficulty had, he had in have, getting Hillary to go on a date with him, it seems Barack Obama had the same difficulty in getting Michelle to go out with him. But the movie is absolutely charming. It is written and directed by Richard Tan. Brilliantly done. It is such a beautiful character study of a moment in time. I can't recommend it highly enough. I didn't know what to expect when I saw it. Um, But then I had the good fortune. I did the press day and had a chance to talk to 
Richard, executive producer John Legend, uh, Tika Sumter, who plays Michelle, Parker Sawyers, who plays Barack Obama. And let me tell you, if you have not seen Parker Sawyers do any of his, he's known for, he does a lot of impressions and he's very, very good. You forget that you are watching an actor playing Barack Obama. There is no parody. There is no caricature. But it is nevertheless, he has the very essence of Obama. And he does have some of the hand gestures and the vocal hesitation and elocution and inflection. It is an incredible performance. And then, of course, as Marion Robinson, Vanessa Bell Calloway, who has been around in anything and everything, but I still love her best in Daylight uh, with Sylvester Stallone. But let's take a listen to my brief conversation at the press day with our cast and crew of Southside with you. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate all of you. This is an exquisite film. You have really set the bar for the best non-date first date ever. (laughs) There will be many problems to come in the future with couples now because of what you have shown everybody. I want to ask all of you, it's very unusual for a film to be made about a sitting president, let alone a very personal story such as this. Was there any kind of trepidation or concern as you were moving forward with the film into delving into this subject matter based on many of the stories that the Obamas themselves have told that we know about? And then embodying the characters so that it was an embodiment, not a caricature. Well, I think I think the the answer to the first question for me in, in in sort of getting the idea and then sitting down to write it and then the mo in making the movie was um, there, there. If I was a smarter person, there would have been more trepidation. But I, I just didn't I didn't consider the political ramifications or, or the or the the grander sort of. Um, uh, journalistic uh, questions that, that that might arise because I, I was just so compelled by that one day and by their relationship in general, just the way that they look at each other, the way that they flirt. Um, it, it, you know, there's a special connection between the president and the first lady, and um, and it was it was a it's a rare thing in people that you just hang out with in life, and it's even rarer in public figures. So. Um, I just sort of dove in um, uh, 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 and, and said, "Well, we're, we're just going to worry about creating this moment in time, and 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 we're gonna we're gonna work on an evolving connection between two people, and um, we'll we'll let you as as the as the viewer bring your own sort of relationship with the people that we see on TV every night and read about every day. You can bring that to it, and that's an extra layer. But we'll just all focus on the love story." Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and, and then I think that extended to Tika and Parker embodying the, the characters. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we never, from the very beginning, we never wanted to do a, a parody or a caricature or imitation. It was always very clear that we wanted to embody the essence of who they are or were at that time. So Rich made sure when we were on set that you know, if it was too much Barack or if it was too much Michelle or or too heavy on the tone of our voices or he always pulled us back. He knew exactly what he wanted vision-wise and, uh, and then we trusted that. And, and I think everything, including, you know, Vanessa's character, you know, Ma- being Marion and, and the set design and all of it kind of lended itself to inform you who these people were. Seeing the bungalow, seeing his car with the hole in it, seeing his cassette, seeing, you know, all these things kind of brought together, uh, contributed to, to both characters that, so that we didn't have to layer it on so too much. We just wanted to humanize them. Basically. Yeah, and speaking to humanizing them, I mean, you know, he was a law student, he was an intern, and he was just a guy trying to get a girl in the summer of 89. And so as long as I focused on that and played the truth of the of the scene and just made sure, you know, I was flirty and playful and, uh, and let my intentions be known, then it was a little easier not to go into the caricature. And I think there will be a lot of Obama uh, art created, inspired by the Obama's life and his presidency. And if you were going to try to do kind of a sweeping biopic about 
these two amazing people, you'd probably need a little more perspective and distance from their presidency. But this actually, there is a lot of distance between their first date and now. Uh, and there's plenty of perspective uh, about what they've become. And I think it was brilliant of Richard to come up with the idea of just focusing on this one moment in time uh, at the beginning of the relationship. Uh, now that we've seen what they've become, now we can see how that started out. And as, you know, trying to embody the mother, I really had to do a lot of work because we don't see or hear a lot of her. So uh, Rich turned me on to some video and some interviews, and then I read some of her son's book to get an idea of, you know, her tonality and who she was and, you know, her perspective. So you just have to, you know, try to do the homework. <laughs> and you got to hear a little bit from everybody about their take on Southside with you. So, highly recommend it. It is a beautiful film. It is beautifully shot. Um, and it is. It's, it's timeless. So, see it. It's in theaters this, this Friday. Now, let's, let's jump to Ben-Hur and, and start going into classic film and, and classic history. And there is nothing more historical than the story of Christ or... These many five, these five incarnations now of Ben Hur. Last week you heard a little bit about from Jack Houston and Toby Kebbell about uh, the how the chariot racing was done in the new Ben Hur. Now I'm going to let you hear about my my conversation with Rodrigo Santoro as he stepped into the role of Christ and particularly one of the most powerful scenes you will ever see on film, the crucifixion. I have to ask you about the crucifixion scene. Mm-hmm. Number one, I know you were shooting in the cold because I could Very see cold. breath coming out of everything. It was it was freezing. What walk me through that experience of that crucifixion scene? It is one of the most powerful I've ever seen. Well, I'm happy to hear that because it it was power, powerful to me. It was powerful. The experience was very powerful. It is. It starts well. The process starts from the day that I got the offer to play the part. Mm-hmm. The, one of the first things that came to my mind was the crucifixion, of course, because just the uh, the meaning that it has. It defined, you know, it defined society. It's before and after that moment. So the importance of that. With that comes fear, with that comes anxiety, with that comes, oh my God, how do I do that? Literally, uh, the night before, well, the week before, I started to feel anxious about that moment, which was expected, and I dealt with it. Um, It started to get really cold and snowed, like two days before it started to snow, and I'm like, my God, what? How am I going to do this? Are they going to cancel? So the, the forecast for the day was sunny. It was perfect conditions, but it was freezing. It was just cold, very cold and windy. So I knew that. Uh, the night before, um, couldn't sleep, which I expected. But also at 1 o'clock, 1.30, they picked me up and I went to makeup. So I had the whole night like six hours and a half doing my whole body doing the makeup around eight o'clock they drove me up the mountain and uh i arrived on set they had a hut warm Mm. i was wrapped around this big um thermal sort of like sheet whatever it was uh and then i had a conversation with timur and i said he said it's really freezing out there we built this structure that they blow hot air they could do between takes and when he said between takes i i asked him not to do takes i asked can we do it in one take um he goes like wow it depends how you feel, you know, maybe we're, if we're able to get everything. I'm like, let me go through a couple of times in one take. Let's not reset it. So at least I go through the experience one time and then you take me out of there. Because of the cold, because of the moment itself, I wanted yeah. to give it all as much as possible. And we did that. We did a 20, they say, Timur said, is the longest take I've ever done. It's a 21 minute take. Uh, straight. He doesn't do takes that long. Yeah. So that's, uh, if you have an opportunity to talk to him, he, he will tell him that that was the way, the only way I found to 
do that in that circumstances with the cold with you know the scene itself so just one whenever i'm up there let me go through it and let's cut when i'm you know when i finish doing a couple of times and we get it what we what we have what we have to get um i don't remember exactly what happened because somehow the cold was i was just freezing my body was freezing and my brain started to freeze and i couldn't think straight which at first I started to sort of like panic. I'm like, oh my God, am I going to be able to deliver my lines? And then my brain started to go crazy and then suddenly started to calm down. And I think it was a blessing because not to think was so good. So it was so helpful because I went up there and I said, you know what? And now I'm going to just go to that place that I've been practicing, which is inside and be truly connected to my heart as much as possible i'm gonna say it the way it comes i just want to access that place that human very human place that i have within me where i can feel the most the biggest love the biggest this place of uh, like true um pure and and just inside my humanity with my own limitations i'm not gonna try to be jesus christ i am not and i just need to recreate this moment and to express what i understand and what i feel you know this moment was and what he was trying to say there was mental uh, reason research which i knew all the different um uh theories mm-hmm. on this line when he said that he meant that when he talks to his mother he doesn't call her by the name because he's protecting her from the romans he didn't my mind it went everywhere and then i just shut down and then let it flow that's what i that's that was my experience uh during this moment and i have beautiful flashes of that moment up there and it's it's uh, you know i would never be able to describe it. i just would never be able to give you like the feeling that mm-hmm. is you know that is like to be up there and the meaning of it the the true meaning of it and true tr- really trying to feel compassion and love and and but being just a just a guy just a human being just a, an actor you know there with you know with the with the uh, characterization and it's crazy because it's a you're pretending to be something very it's just very it's too deep mm. to really grasp it's not rational it's something that you just give yourself you give yourself okay here i am i will do my best i will be my best and 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 here's my heart that's it it's 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 the most i could do in that situation And I'm sure you can hear it in Rodrigo's voice, the passion that he had for the role, for the performance, and for that specific scene. And sitting there with him and just watching him, I can't tell you what it was like. You could just feel, you know, feel this essence that he had of pure joy. And it was very humbling listening to him and he was very humbled by the experience um so i hope that you all do go see ben-hur and speaking of ben-hur let's get back to jack houston and since we're going to have monica henry here with a an illustrious family legacy jack houston has one as well so i had a chance to ask him about that family history when he was shooting on Cinecita Studios for Ben-Hur. Did your family history, did you ever feel that while you were performing in Cinecita in Italy? I mean, your grandfather shot the Bible. Yeah, he did. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. Seven years after this one, it was... um Yeah, I mean, that's a... What a place. I mean, when you find out you're, you know, you're playing due to Ben-Hur, that's a pretty special day. But then you find out where you're going to be shooting it, too. That was... um, And that really is special to me because, you know, 
you feel the history at every turn in that studio. Like, it hasn't changed much. It's like you're on the sound stages, you know who were filmed on these sound stages. You know the actors, the titans who are there before you. And in a way, that sort of carries you through each day. Because, you know, this was a brutal shoot. Like, we really went there with it. And I wouldn't have had it any other way. But it's always nice when you sort of feel like one's ancestors and sort of like the greater sense of ancestors. I'm talking about all those people in a sense that's all watching down on you. And it was, um, and by the way, you know, the great thing was uh, we shot it there that like my makeup guy, Luigi Rochetti, he, his father worked on the original Ben-Hur. His first film set he ever went on to, well, not the original, the 59 version, was the was that Ben-Hur was the first film set he ever went on to. There were lots of guys from the crew who had been a part of that. And it's like, that's such a cool thing because it was, everyone was, um, it was such an homage to the great book and to the idea and that we're bringing it to a new audience. So, you know, it felt it was a very special time. And a very special time indeed. So I also got to talk to Jack. We're a little out of order with the clips here. We're juggling, juggling things. But I also asked him about assuming this role in and of itself and what that, what that meant to him. And, yes, you will hear me blatantly admit, and many of you will disagree with me, but my love for this performance. I'm going to say something that every classic film fan that I know within the TCM realm is going to hate me for. <laughs> but give it, with the script that you have and your performance, I will watch you over Charlton Heston any day of the week. Uh, <laughs> well, if this is how the rest of the day is going to go. This role was tailor-made for you, given your lineage, given your upbringing, on the side of both your parents. Uh, but the youthful exuberance that you bring to Judah Ben-Hur, we see and feel the brotherly love and his transformation as yeah. he hits rock bottom and then pulls himself Yeah, up. yeah. Well, it was, it's really interesting because I... You know, I'm someone who loved the, 60, the, the 59 version and, and uh, I know the family, funny enough, very well. Um, and that, while being a story about revenge, this is a... a and Charlton Heston approached the role in a much more sort of manly way. Like, he, when you first find him, he was... It was the rivalry was already there and it turned into the revenge story. This, which was so lovely, is when I got the script... I read it and I was like, oh, it's completely been reimagined. And it's taken back that actually I found the character in the beginning is sort of a lost boy. Mm -hmm. And through circumstance and the betrayal and the rest of it, he sort of does exactly do that. Hits rock bottom and you see such a transformation um, right through to the end. Um, And also you're given this really lovely backstory that these two brothers loved each other. Mm -hmm. In such a strong way, you actually see that backstory between the two of us. It was great because Toby's such a great actor and like a really good friend. So we uh, really worked on that. We wanted that because that's in a sense got to carry you all the way through to the end of the movie. Um, so yeah, it was. Um, you know, you look for great characters. I think you'd be hard pressed to find a better one. And if, as an actor, you want to go on a journey, and this takes you there. Like whatever you, you you say, you can't not go there for this role. And it's like you know that's sort of the, the best part about the job is when you find something which you feel you can fully immerse yourself in in every way and actually go on a a journey of self-exploration yourself and I felt like that was what happened and that is what happened so again see Ben Hur but in the meantime joining us right now is Monica Henry are you there Monica I am indeed oh welcome welcome this is an absolute treat to have you join the show today I I am just blown over by the documentary that you're doing about your dad. But also, I have to tell you that since I was about 10 years old, now Voyager, my number oh. my number one film. <laughs> yes. Well, um, it became quite popular. It has become quite popular. And it seems that it's, it has a resurgence. With, an, with a whole new generation as we're counting down to the 75th anniversary. Absolutely. I, that's the thing about good storytelling. If you've got a good story and you tell it well and you, you know, fill it full of talented performers and craftsmen, you, you end up with a film that can keep coming back. You know, I mean, Casablanca has never left the forefront, but now Voyager kind of, 
you know, it, it, it took a step back there, but for Die Hard, I mean, that is a real, a romance movie in the truest sense of the word. Absolutely. It makes one want to wish that they had brought stock in Kleenex. Oh, my God. I can't make it, to this day, I can't make it through that movie without crying. <laughs> it, it, it's, I admit it. It is impossible. But, you know, you know, let me ask, you have described your dad as a gentleman and a gentleman. Yes. And I think that is, it, it, it is just so beautiful. And we saw that on screen, but to hear that from his daughter, who knew him behind the facade of of film. Yeah, he was um, he was really quite an extraordinary uh, extraordinary person. He, I mean, complicated beyond belief sometimes, but he was both of those things. He was a, the consummate gentleman. He was always polite. He was always gracious. He was always charming, and he was basically a gentle human being. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, every every film I've ever seen your dad in it always makes me think of my grandfather who grew up in Goslar, Germany, mm-hmm. and it's that it's that European the manners, the politeness, and the gen, and the gentility. Yes, and it's yeah. just it's beautiful, beautiful. It I'd like to, I'd like to run across more of it. <laughs> oh, you you and I, me both. I know. <laughs> yeah. Now, what is it that? But, you know, what has prompted you to want to make the documentary on your father? We have, you know, we just heard Jack Houston. Jack is, you know, now third generation uh, mm-hmm. of Hollywood. But he's not out there making documentaries and things about his dad, his grandfather, or his great-grandfather. We have right. so many. Drew Barrymore isn't out there making stories about her family. Very yeah. few people step up. Um, to tell a story from a very particular perspective. And I'm fascinated that you're doing this, but also because of the story that, you're, that you are actually telling. Well, I, I think in the case of Houston's and Barrymore's, you have legendary families and you have lots of companies that have already, shall we say, covered the territory. Mm-hmm. There used to be the A&E biographies and there were documentaries being made by any number of companies for a very long time and I think I think we we've learned those stories and we've acknowledged that extraordinary path that those families took. In the case of my father, no one has done a documentary about him. And and anybody could. Uh, he was a public person. He was out there like any other movie star, but they can't tell this story <laughs> they can't tell it from this point of view you know and i think i think he was an amazing man and he lived an amazing life and i don't live in los angeles anymore and when i popped in and out over the last few years people have said to me well gee what did your dad do when he retired from being an actor and i was just blown away that they that people within the industry itself did not know mm-hmm. that he had directed over 30, excuse me, yes, over 30 Hitchcocks and uh, over 300 episodes of television. Your dad, you know, so, one of the most prolific television directors. He was. Uh, it, he was. And again, it's one of those things that people, even people within the industry don't know. And, and God bless the fans because they're the ones who are reading the credits now and acknowledging it and coming back to me through social media saying, oh, wow, I just saw, you know, such and such. I just saw a Big Valley or I just saw a Maverick or I just saw whatever. I didn't realize your dad did this. It's such a, I, I'd seen this one before and I didn't realize your dad directed it. And I thought, well, you know, maybe now's the time. I just have to, I have to step up to the plate and do this. And it does coincide uh, rather beautifully with the 75th anniversary of both now Voyager and Casablanca. Mm-hmm. So it will it will be ready and available next year. <laughs> I mean, I I am chomping at the bit. I can't wait. For, oh, you're sweet. Thank I, you. You know, because I I mean, I've been perusing the website for a while, looking to, to see what, if you have any updates or things like that. And some of the information that you are imparting. You know, his the fact that he was blacklisted, not once, not twice, 
but three times, and not in just one country, but three. That's got to be a Guinness record, I think. And, and for three different reasons. It's it's just, and those are the kind of things that history books aren't going aren't going to tell you. No. And, no, and it's and it's interesting too because I and again talking to the fans who, by the way, I adore the fans. My father's fans are just so wonderful and so gracious and so connected and committed to him. It's just I, I'm thrilled to pieces. Um, but again, it's 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 just fascinating what is known and what is not known. And I think that's, you know, that it sort of makes me continue. I, I do try to post things. I do try. I'm, I am, uh, as my daughter says, I am technologically challenged. <laughs> so <laughs> um, working with a computer is a love-hate relationship. <laughs> and um, I do what I can to get information out there. And, and things are beginning to to move along, as they say, the train has left the station, and we're getting ready to run a first edit on the film. So it's getting pretty exciting. So, but uh, as far as the storytelling goes, I mean, he was just—he was just an amazing, complicated man, and he was an amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, how do you, when you decide that you're going to make this documentary, and you know your father like no other? Mm-hmm. How do you decide, how do you pick your approach for the documentary? Did you, the, did you sit yeah, the, and rough I'm it sorry. out, or did you start, decide, well, we've got to include films. Well, I want to include some home movies. Well, what was that process like for you to actually come up with your narrative through line in the documentary? Well, okay, actually, that came quite easily and quite organically, if I can put it that way. And I, I've been a filmmaker for a long time, so this isn't like my first time at that or anything like that. Um, this, was, this was really, this really came out of uh, family and going back home to Vienna and visiting with my son at a very difficult time in his life. And, it, well, to be honest, his wife had just passed away, so it was really difficult. And when I stayed there to be there with him and his life was, readjusting and so on. This is really the first time I spent time in Vienna as an adult by myself for a long period of time, and I thought, gee, I'm going to go and investigate the places and the stories my father told, you know, all of my childhood, all of of my growing up. And I found things to be fascinating and amazing. I went into archives. I went into family histories. I went into the film archives, the city archives, just everywhere I could. And it's a deep, deep, deep relationship because not only was my father uh, raised in Vienna, so was my mother. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge history there on both sides of the family. And I just, when I realized that I really wanted to tell this story, I, well, it told me that I should tell it in the sense of discovery. In other words, I will narrate this film, but you will never see me on the screen because I'm you. Mm-hmm. I want you to discover what I discovered as I discovered it. So that's the point of view. And it, once you go down that path, then it's fairly easy. That's not really the right word, but it, it makes it uh, possible and viable to pick the pieces of the story to tell. And, mm-hmm. of course, you always, it's like you always overtell and you find too many photographs and too many film clips, and then you kind of pull it down until it tells you, well, this is the story you're, you're telling. Uh, do you have any idea how much information you amassed <laughs> in research to go through to call down for the film? Uh, you know, have you got a couple days? It, <laughs> there's so much material. There's so much material. There's 47 feature films. There's seven films he directed. There's over 300 episodes of television. There's endless home movies because my father loved cameras and gadgets and always had the newest. And my mother was the one who said, take a picture, Polly. Yeah. <laughs> take another picture, Polly. You know, and if that was like every day. <laughs> Playing tennis, riding horses, swimming in the pool, learning how to ride a bike. It's all there. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was, my mother called, he was a bustler. That means he was a, it was a 
like a handyman, a craftsman. He loved to, to do things, so he had to have all the newest cameras and all the newest toys that went with it. Oh, my gosh. Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> in, in this discovery, are there, are, are there things that you found that you had completely forgotten or that were totally new to you? Things I had forgotten, yes, most definitely. Uh, I don't think new to me. It was more reminders. You know, it was more, uh, I mean, actually, amazingly, last Wednesday night, I had dinner with two guys who literally grew up across the street from me the first 21 years of my life. And we sat and talked and laughed for about six hours. Because each one of us would tell a story which would remind someone of another story. And what was the most interesting to me was listening to their perspective of coming to our house to swim. We all swam in each other's pools. But there was some, I guess, we had the biggest pool on the block. We had the tennis court. We had whatever. And these two guys sat there talking to me on Wednesday night just saying, oh, do you remember that time we were all playing Flash Gordon? And <laughs> oh my God. Yes, I guess I do if I think about it well enough. you know. And as your face is turning bright red. Oh, completely. <laughs> completely. Did you, yeah. when you were growing up, did you realize the magnitude of who your father was, Monica? No, not a clue. Yeah, you know, I, 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 found, I was just talking to Bryce Dallas Howard the other week, and something similar came up, and she said the same thing. She had no clue. It never right. occurred to her, really, who the legend of Ron Howard is. Right, and that, that's part of the thing. When you grow up in a normal, and, and I say, you know, normalized family, we were a normal family. Mm-hmm. We were a European family living in Los Angeles. And the surroundings were family and friends. There were no paparazzi. There was no craziness. It was just a normal family. So when someone says to me, oh, what was it like growing up, the daughter of a movie star? I mean, my answer is, I don't, I don't know because I have nothing to compare it to. Mm-hmm. We, just, we just had, you know, we had breakfast in the morning and we went to school and, you know. Yes, we traveled, which was very nice, but, you know, it wasn't extraordinary because most of the kids of the families that we knew who were friends did the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's not like what we see today and that has been happening over the past 10 to 15 years with, quote-unquote, celebrity families. No. No, not at all. And my parents weren't like that anyway. For, for my father, a job was a job. He never considered himself a celebrity. I mean, he loved uh, the the acknowledgement and the, you know, to a certain extent, adoration. He did have some very traditional old-school European ways about him where he didn't understand um, the the extremely verbal and extremely physical... <laughs> approach of fans. He didn't understand that. I mean, he. there was a time in his life when Casablanca and now Voyager were out at the same time where women were literally attacking him and tearing his clothes a la, you know, Frank Sinatra rock and roll stars. And he didn't understand that at all. And he really didn't care for it. But as because he was a quiet man, a gentle man, he didn't, he didn't appreciate that. But he did acknowledge and, and uh, appreciate the, the fan base. He, he did that, you mm-hmm. know. I can't say he didn't do that. No. But, but again, you know, he, he, was a, he came from a different era, a different... He, he was born at the time of empire. Mm-hmm. You know, the first eight years of his life, maybe longer, maybe ten years of his life, you know, it was the Kaiser. Mm-hmm. And, and he grew up his father being a banker and and involved with the with the court would go to lunch at the palace and you know it, you, we, now when people think of palaces they think of Disneyland and yes. God, you know God bless that Disney built us castles that we can go and visit very easily. That's true. You know, he, and my father grew up in a time where going to a palace was that's what you did because you could. 
Yeah, I, that's and I grew up the same way through my grandparents. Uh, you know, when Kaiser Wilhelm was in Kaiser Wilhelm the first mm-hmm. was was in power in Germany. So you know, and it is it's a whole different mindset, a completely different mindset. Yeah, and it, mindset. If, if you and he never lost it. To the day he died, he flew the Austrian flag up off of the property. Oh, <laughs> up it went. Every morning, down it came. Every evening. Oh, yes. That's, yes, yes, that's so sweet. I love <laughs> that. They're very Austrian, very aristocratic Austrian. Mm-hmm. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh! So now, how much? What do you do? You think is you've you've acted, you've made yep. films yourself. Yeah. Did you did were you did your father kind of lead you that way, or did he let you find your own way? It was it was a little mix and match. It was um, I I love the work. I love the curiosity, the discovery, the how to create a character, to do all of those things. I love the behind the scenes, or behind or backstage. I love all of the process. What I never particularly cared for, and to this day really don't care for, is all the nonsense that goes with it. Um, the egos and the competitiveness and the fighting and the nastiness that goes on. And I, I, that's not in my character. I, I am a gentle person also. So I will find my way to do my work, and um, hopefully people will enjoy it. Now, but he was encouraging. I, I won't say he was discouraging. He was, he was encouraging. He hired me often, and I enjoyed working with him. I enjoyed working with him as an actress, and I enjoyed working with him as his assistant, and I enjoyed working him, with him as his assistant director. Mm-hmm. What's the, what is the greatest? Well, let's first let's find out here. So, how was Paul Henry the director to Monica the actress? Oh, terrific! <laughs> Absolutely terrific! Because having been an actor, he knew how to talk to actors. So that was the, that was the first thing. He was also very good about separating um, the director from the father. He didn't. He didn't treat me differently than he treated the other actors. Mm-hmm. He, he spoke gently to everybody. He spoke deliberately, eyeball to eyeball, to everybody. And I must say that for all of the times I've been back on the lot at Warner Brothers, for instance, where he directed a lot, the crew would come up to me, oh, working with your father was so wonderful. Working with him was one of the great pleasures of my life. And it didn't matter if it was a, a grip or some guy hanging in the rafters or the cameraman. Everybody had basically the same experience with him. He was a consummate professional. He knew his stuff. He knew what he was there to do. Um, he, you know, after dinner, he would say goodnight, and he would disappear into his rooms, and you wouldn't see him again until the morning and he would spend the evening going over the script and breaking it down and writing out and designing camera angles, doing literally a graphic art project out of every script so that he knew exactly when the camera moved here and there and how many takes. And people who uh, work with someone like that appreciated it. Mm-hmm. Oh, they I... all appreciated it because he never, he never showed up on the job unprepared, ever. I know so many stuntmen and Western guys who, who did all those Westerns mm-hmm. uh, when your dad was directing. And years ago, when I first met all these guys, and they kind of took me under their wing to shepherd me a little bit, they mm-hmm. all, they loved your father. When they found out my love of classic film, and I knew all, you know, I knew who these guys were. I knew the guys that had, had worked on films with John Wayne. and So they would... It's like they would start telling me all the stories about working with legends like your dad. And I distinctly remember several of them talking about him in conversations we had and how much they loved having him as a director. Oh, thank you for telling me that. That's so nice. I mean, it just, you know, and those are the things that I think matter so, so much for, you know, somebody can have a legacy, but when you have a legacy like that, that is filled with so much respect and love. It's really lovely. So really, what, really lovely. What, is the great, what is the greatest thing that you learned from your father, the greatest gift that he gave you? 
Well, there, there are a lot, but the first one that comes to mind is do your homework. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and, and literally, you know, I, I mean, sure, he meant it for school, but he also meant it in life. Don't, don't be unprepared. Do your homework. There's, there's plenty. Of, if you hear about something that you're interested in, go explore it. Find out what it is. Find out if it works for you, if it's something you really want to do or want to investigate further. You know, just don't be lazy. You know, go go find out. And and if you have a job, oh, please know your job. Do your homework. Learn what it is that your job responsibilities are. You know, because well-rehearsed is well-played. Mm-hmm. So that's, true. that's probably the biggest one. And then his passion for music and food and and uh, art, you know, is, is just was extraordinary. We never, wherever we went, we were the first thing. Well, the first thing was was eating. <laughs> <laughs> My father was a man, and it was definitely the way to his heart was through his stomach. So it was always we ate well. We went somewhere fabulous to eat, and then it would be to. An art gallery, to a museum, to a concert, to a ballet, to a some wonderful, cultural, exciting, beautiful event, and and we that's how we traveled. I mean, that and here in Los Angeles as well, we we were always um, involved in the arts, mm-hmm. and his passion for that is is also a big a big gift that he gave. Well, and I want to ask you because a film of your dad's that I have always been very drawn to is Song of Love, where he plays mm-hmm. Robert Schumann. And it yep. always felt to me that that role was probably one he was the most comfortable in. And I'm thinking that maybe because of his love of music and art and things like that, that perhaps that really did help influence his performance there. Well, I, I don't know that he ever actually said it out loud to me. I don't have that actual remembrance that he, that he did feel that that was a favorite or a comfortable or a whatever mm-hmm. kind of role for him. But I will tell you that Schumann was one of his favorite composers. Oh. And there was a lot of Schumann flowing through our house when I was growing up. And I think there was a comfort level there for him. And, of course, he loved working with Kate Hepburn so, and, and, and uh, Robert Walker, too. So there was a comfort level there all the way around because they, too, were, you know, true professionals, well-studied, well-rehearsed, knew their stuff. And there's a comfort, you know, there is a comfort level when you you don't get those jolts of surprise when someone shows up that doesn't know their lines or doesn't know their, hasn't done their backstory, hasn't done their, literally Mm -hmm. their homework to find out who it is that they're playing. So now yesterday people were posting on Facebook about Dead Ringer. (laughs) <laughs> uh, okay, now. Well, you, talk about contrast. Like, there is talk, no direct line from Song of Love to Dead Ringer. There is no. Well, well done. <laughs> so, you know, you posted on there that you have so, in capital letters, many stories about. <laughs> was Dead Ringer a curse or a blessing to your dad? Oh, no, no, no. It, it's wonderful. But my reference on that was whoever had posted prior to that, I. Again, I love fans. I, I love and admire how much time they take to read biographies and look, look up their favorite stars and see how they live their lives and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But, but, you know, you have to give and take with that, and you have to take it with a pinch of salt because some of these people become legends or legendary because someone else has written something about them and either it isn't quite accurate... <laughs> Or it isn't quite, it's their version. So then it becomes this sort of mythology that is created for certain actors and actresses and directors and musicians and whatever have you. And and I, I get a kick out of it because I don't want to discourage anyone from reading or, or looking things up and enjoying what they enjoy and telling the stories they love to enjoy. But some of them are just inaccurate. And that's that's really why I wrote. No. <laughs> you know. Well, unfortunately, Monica, I am getting the the we must wrap because the show is ending sign from Brian. I want to kill oh. him. I want to kill him at this moment. <laughs> I, I I would I would I'd keep going on this show and run it for another hour to talk to you about. <laughs> oh, you're dear. Thank you so much. You will come back on the show, won't you, Monica? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. You keep throwing me the good questions, I'll keep coming up with answers. Well, now, before we do go, are people can the website for the documentary, so people can go to that because they can also donate to help get you over the editing and the marketing hurdles, too. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's really very simple. It's henrybeyondlazlo.com. And I can't wait. As I said, I can't wait. Monica, You're just a doll. Thank you for that. Oh, Monica, thank you so much. This has been an absolute joy today. <laughs> absolute joy. My pleasure. My and pleasure. I look anytime. Come back on as you get through your oh. editing process, and we're inching away. You know. Great. My pleasure. Oh, thank you, Monica. Thank you. Take good care. I will. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that was Monica Henreid. A joy working on her father's documentary, Paul Henry Beyond Victor Laszlo. And yes, we will have Monica back in the future. And you'll be able to watch the video later when we get it up later this week or over the weekend uh, with the show. We'll have all the information there on the website uh, for where you can follow the progress of the documentary. So I think that's all the time we have, is it not, Brian? He's nodding his head. So until next week. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.